Hello, everybody. It is me, Sean Francis. I am back with another podcast. This is a good one. Dr. Elam. Uh, she is a master wizard at cognitive behavioral therapy, something that has helped me in the past uh, more so than I can count. And the more I do it, uh, the easier it is, but it, it can be a struggle at times. Um, looking at your thoughts, a hot thought, they call it, and challenging it. And so we have a giant, massively wonderful conversation about this. And there's some points where she <laughs> she blew my mind and goes, oh, thought, thoughts come before feelings. Oh, and to recognize the difference between a thought and a feeling is a, is a, a feeling is one word and a thought is multiple words, including if you say, you know, I feel that this person blah, 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 blah. Well, that was multiple words. You just use the word feel in your thought. <laughs> Mind blown. So separating your thoughts and your feelings can be extremely powerful. So it was with my pleasure to introduce Dr. Marnine Elam, PhD at Bradman University and Associate Professor of Psychology. She has a host of certifications, including mental health response specialist, behavioral therapist specialist, telemental health provider, and clinical treatment and clinical anxiety treatment professional. She also wanted me to put this in there, which I should probably do at the beginning of every one. So this is just a warning that these are our opinions, and and I'll just I'll just read this here. This podcast represents the opinions of Sean Francis and Dr. Marnie K. Elam. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is not intended to assess, diagnose, or treat any medical or psychological condition. If you think you need immediate assistance, please call nine one one or go to your local emergency room. This podcast is for information only. It is not therapy. You should go see a therapist if you feel like you need some help. This podcast is only for informational and educational purposes and should not be considered therapy or any form of treatment. Any person who uses information from this podcast does so at their own risk, and neither Mr. Francis nor Dr. Elam shall be held liable in any way for any outcome of this use. Privacy is up the utmost important to us. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in this podcast have been changed to protect their patient confidentiality. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care or as a basis of expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made in this podcast. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient therapeutic relationship. Woo! Um, as I, I, I need to mention this in all the podcasts more, but as always, if you head over to onewholelifemedia.com, there is a list of resources and links to get help if you feel like you need help or don't know where to turn from here. So head over there check it out and then um yeah you can also support what we're doing here all right with my further ado dr elam confucius said we have two lives and the second begins when we realize that we only have one we're all given one whole life and when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health One Whole Life with Sean Francis. When I reached out to you, 
the one of the big goals of this project for me is trying to figure out depression. And when I sent you that first email, you essentially told me that, um, Sean, you probably never figure out depression. <laughs> and then you ex went on to explain to me why, but there's good news behind it. Can you kind of explain what, what you meant by that? Sure. Um, you know, the state of the art right now is that we cannot for each individual pinpoint and say, that's why you're depressed. Um, you know, if you have a medical problem that's causing it or a medication or a substance that you're using, we may be able to do that. And it's always extremely important to rule those things out. So if you are depressed, especially if you're depressed suddenly and there was no event or anything that happened, it's really important to go get a physical because things like thyroid problems, um, brain tumors, which are not common, but they certainly occur, uh, heart problems, other issues can cause depression. And people often don't know that. There's also a lot of medications that can cause people to be depressed. So, I mean, the list is very long of medications that would not seem related. Things like anti-nausea meds, um, medication for hepatitis, uh, some uh, heart meds and things like that, blood pressure meds. So steroids, you know, it's really important to rule those things out because you're just gonna be spinning your wheels if you like go to therapy and that's not your problem. If you're using, you know, any kind of alcohol or street drugs or anything like that, those can absolutely cause you to feel depressed. Both depressant drugs will make you depressed, but so will stimulants because stimulants sort of dump all your dopamine in your brain and, they, and you feel really, really good momentarily, but then you crash because your brain is a recycler and it re-uptakes that dopamine. There's no dopamine left. It just degrades in that sort of intense high. And then people get very depressed because the brain is depleted of dopamine. So sometimes people think, well, why am I so depressed? I'm, you know, I'm using cocaine or crystal or whatever. It's like, well, that's why it's, it's, is it's it just similar, bad for your brain in general. Is it similar to like a, a caffeine crash in, in the way like your brain's just it's gone. I mean, it doesn't feel yeah, the same by any means. A lot worse. A lot, a lot <laughs> because you're, yeah, because sure. you're really dumping, you know, that what gives you that high is that you're just, your brain is just flooded with dopamine and dopamine is a pleasure chemical basically. And once that dopamine degrades, the brain can't reuptake it. So the brain has to make more. And in that intervening period, people feel very depressed. Okay. So it's that up down thing. And it's part of what causes a cycle of addiction for some people is, you know, we're ch you're chasing the high at first and then later you're trying to run away from the depression. So it, you know, can create this, this very bad cycle. So if you have a medical problem, you're using a substance, you know, we can identify those things, but if none of that's the case, then we may not know. And you might even think to yourself, well, that happened and that happened and that must be why I'm depressed. Maybe, but we can't prove that. So all we can really do is conjecture. We could say, well, you had this happen as a child or you just recently had this loss or this other thing happened, but we, we don't know that. It's just a conjecture. So that might seem like bad news, but it's really not in, in that sense because we don't actually need to know why you ended up where you are to help you get out of where you are. So depression is very treatable regardless of how you got there. So obviously if you have a medical condition, you treat the medical condition. If it's a substance, you treat the substance disorder. But if it is, even if it isn't any of those things, if you have just a depression that kind of comes out of the blue, or even if it is related to an event, the treatment is not dependent on the cause. 
So okay. that's fantastic news, right? Right. Um, we've got a lot of things we can do. So we don't really have to spend a lot of time digging around in the past and figuring out every single thing that was, you know, happened to you or that might have been traumatic. Um, you know, it might be interesting. And again, it might be like, oh, okay, yeah, we think that's why. But it that doesn't actually necessarily inform the treatment. So the the why is not as important as how do we now help you? So, and we have a lot of ways to do that. So that's step one. It sounds like if you go to a doctor or a therapist is just seeing ruling out the physical things, whether like you said, tumor or that. And then step two is just we know you have the symptoms and then you just start treating the symptoms at that point. Is that well, you, you treat the person, right? The I mean, person, you assess right. the symptoms to see whether somebody actually has a diagnosis of depression and a diagnosis is a very you know specific set of symptoms that people have. Um, and then depending on that person and what their goals are, because, you know, when you do therapy, like I don't, I don't work on people, I work with people. Right. So you're looking at their set of symptoms, but you're also looking at the rest of their life. So for instance, if you have depression, and in addition to that, you are homeless and you have, you know, a, a court problem, like a legal problem you have to take care of, and you are diabetic or you've got some other thing. We have to look at, you know, the whole life picture because those extra stressors are certainly going to have an impact on depression. Okay. Um, you look at, you know, how people have been coping with it, or maybe they're not coping with it. What kind of social support do people have? Um, how do they feel about themselves? How long has it been going on? There's a, there's a lot of things that you assess to try to set up a, pre, a treatment plan, but ultimately the treatment plan is dependent on the client's goals. So what are they trying to get to? Okay. And then we, we, we create a map for that and we do some interventions. You know, honestly, it, the, the client has the much harder job because I can say, all right, try this, try that. The client actually has to go out and try it. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is the hard part, but we do have really good treatments and depression really is highly treatable. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, give or take, it's about a 90% success rate. If, if people really engage in treatment um, and even the other 10% can often get better. They just may not go into like full remission. Okay. This is, this is probably a good segue to that next question is so what's the difference between clinical depression and feeling sad and, and just hopeless? Um, I get a lot of questions about that. Actually people, especially now it just seems like when social media, people are telling you just go for a walk if you feel depressed. And for someone like me, you know, there's no amount of exercise I could do. That's going to you know, get me out of that. Yeah. I mean, a walk might help, right. Yeah, but it's right. not going to solve the whole problem. Right. Um, well, I mean, sadness is a very normal human condition, right? I mean, we feel sad, sad things happen. You're, you're, you know, I just, I lost my cat in November, my favorite cat, the best cat in the world, Serengeti. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's, it's okay. But I mean, I was really sad, you yeah. know, it was really hard. I had to put her, put him to sleep. He was very ill and I was, you know, really sad and I was grieving his loss, but that's different than like a clinical depression because when you're sad, or when you're grieving, it's usually sad over something and it's kind of limited to that thing. You don't feel sad about everything. You feel sad about a thing that's going on. Like, you know, you don't like your work and you're sad about your work, but your relationship is good and you're, and you're happy when you're with your partner. Um, you know, it, with grief, let's say, you may feel very, very depressed about that, about that loss. But again, you don't normally feel depressed about everything 
you don't normally have a loss of self-esteem, which you almost always have in depression where people just feel bad, really bad about themselves. Um, even people who end up sort of having some suicidal ideation around having lost a person, it's usually about, I want to go join that person. It's okay. not, my life is so terrible that I just can't stand the pain anymore, or I'd ha I completely have no hope. Um, you know, sadness, general sadness doesn't usually lead people to feel completely hopeless. They have hope. They just feel bad in the moment. Okay. So there's a lot, it's a much kind of greater general feeling of depression. Another thing that happens with clinical depression is there's almost always a loss of pleasure. It's, there's a fancy word for it. It's called anhedonia. Okay. Um, and anhedonia just is a Greek word. It means the inability to experience pleasure. You know, even if you're grieving or even if you're sad, you can you can kind of still enjoy that ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> in the moment, right? Right. And you may you can still think of that person, you know, with some joy. Like you remember happy memories. Maybe you laugh about the happy. Oh, remember when we did that and that was so funny. So there's a mixture usually of emotions in that. Um, but with depression, that's probably one of the worst symptoms is that things that used to feel good no longer feel good. And people just feel like nothing feels good. Like everything I used to do, it, do it doesn't feel good anymore. And that often leads to not doing anything or and social isolating. And, and it leads to this vicious cycle that only kind of makes that pain worse. But right. it's so you get a lot of that. You also get a lot of physical symptoms, which you sometimes get with grief as well. But they also tend to kind of clear up within, you know, days or weeks. Like initially when you have a loss, you may not sleep. Your appetite goes down you feel overwhelmed, but relatively quickly, unless you have a very complicated bereavement situation, you start to sleep again, your appetite comes back, you still might feel really sad, but those things start to normalize. And in clinical depression, they often don't. I mean, people just don't, they're not sleeping, they're not eating, or they're sleeping too much or eating too much. Um, and it doesn't get better quite often on its own. So again, grief, sadness usually will resolve over time it might take a while but it, it resolves but depression just kind of it stays the same it may get worse it really doesn't necessarily get a lot better unless you do some kind of treatment for it i mean it, it, it can spontaneously remit that does happen but it's not as common as it is for like sadness or grief which pretty much always eventually uh, remits and not doesn't take that long you know some people are depressed for literally years right if they don't get treatment and they don't do anything different. So those are some of the differences that loss of self-esteem, that loss of pleasure, the sort of all encompassing feeling of depression, um, not being able to experience pleasure, having a lot of physiological symptoms, the, you know, and the severity usually of that feeling of sadness um, are some of the differences that you would see. Is there, is there like, I, I know this might go back to the reason or whatever, but um, is there an evolutionary reason for depression and sadness versus like clinical depression or no idea that's one of those <laughs> who knows i mean maybe somebody out there you know there is a, there is a field called evolutionary psychology um but i you know it's just my personal opinion about it. i think it, it relies far too heavily on a lot of conjecture about yeah. what what would have been evolutionarily um beneficial. I mean, the fact is we don't really know, you know, we don't know yeah. really what was going on a million years ago. Kind of thing. Oh, for sure. We, yeah. You know, we know basically that what people needed to do to, to survive. I mean, there is some uh, 
there is some research that indicates that human beings by nature will tend to go towards a negative evaluation. And what might have been beneficial in that is, you know, if I'm in a cave and I'm wondering if there's a tiger outside, I might want to just assume there is. <laughs> right. Right. Because yeah, I, I may sense. not really want to like go, oh, no, there's no tiger and then venture out. Right. So in that sense, <laughs> you know, perhaps. But really, it's kind of a brain thing. I mean, our brains actually um, our you know, our brain chemistry changes in relationship to people we care about. Like, if, you know, if your best friend walked in the room right now your blood pressure would go down, your heart rate would slow down a little bit, your brain would start pumping some dopamine, maybe some epinephrine, you would feel better. Yeah. Um, so when we have losses in particular, uh, the brain literally reacts to that. There's a, there's a really great book called, it's an old book, um, but it's it's a really good book. It's called A General Theory of Love. Hmm. And it talks you know, about this, about sort of the brain connection and, and what happens when you when you lose someone or, you know, loss in general, it's not always a death, a, a breakup, um, somebody you, you know, your best friend moves across the country or across the world, you used to see him every day and now you don't. I think right now we're seeing a lot of rise in depression and anxiety because people cannot be in the same room. It's not the same to be virtual. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's helpful, but it's, it's not, you know, it, it is not the same and we do not have the same physiological reaction to being on a video as we do to being in person. That, that was actually one of, gonna be one of my next questions is with this pandemic, um, there has been a skyrocket in mental health cases and, and depression and things like that. Is it just yeah. the lack of, because we are social creatures, is it primarily that or, it, I'm sure there's so many factors going on, like not knowing um, if you're gonna have a job next week based on mm -hmm. if things are gonna get closed and not seeing your friends and people dying around you. But um, what what would you say is creating most of that spike right now and what can people do to you know, help themselves with that? Well, some of the things you just mentioned, you know, are, are very true. Uh, financial stress on a lot of people, um, losses, you know, lots of people have, have been ill. Lots of people have lost loved ones um, or, you know, even people who survived it, but are still having symptoms or they, they had sort of traumatic experiences of being put on respirators and having to be sedated for long periods of time. You know, that's, that's kind of traumatic psychologically oh, too, sure. to be like, okay, you're going to knock me out literally. And I'm going to be on a breathing machine. Um, and I might not wake up, you know, I mean, there's the fear fear of that. Um, I think one of the biggest things, and again, this is, you know, my opinion and from what I'm seeing with my own clients and, you know, even just my own life, um, uncertainty is never a good thing. Human beings do not do well when they cannot predict what's going to happen, at least marginally. Um, we really don't like ambiguity. We like to know what we think is going to happen because then we can plan for it. You can't really cope with what you don't know. Right. <laughs> so it's throwing everybody's coping off. The other thing is, you know, our stress has greatly incre increased with COVID because we've had to adjust a lot. You know, you can't, it used to be, you know, I go get on my car, get on my motorcycle, go to the grocery store, buy my groceries, come home. Now it's okay. Do I have a mask? 
oh, that guy, get away from me, you know, when they're standing like two feet from <laughs> you in the back, like, could you back up? Yeah. Um, you're, you know, you're, the mindfulness of all of this is taking a tremendous amount of energy and probably way more energy than people realize. So a lot of what used to be automated processes that took very little energy because we didn't really have to think about them, we just did them. Now we have to take all this energy to think about it. We're also socially isolated. So you add, you know, it's kind of like you knock the domino over another domino, another domino, and they're just falling kind of one after another. I mean, you've got an uncertainty of, yes, we have vaccines now and that's fantastic. And that's really wrapping up and the numbers are coming down, but we don't have an end date. You know, we tolerate things better if we know there's an end date. So if we kind of went, okay, the end of pandemic will be June 1st. Right. <laughs> Everybody would go, okay, all right. I just have to make it another X number of days or months. And it would be hard, but we would know there's an end. We don't know. We still don't know. I mean, it, we know it's coming, but we don't know when. So again, we can't plan. And then on top of that, so you add all this stress, financial stress, job stress, working from home for some people is just a miserable experience. Some people love it, but other people hate it. People who have kids are trying to, you know, basically school their kids and do their own work. Uh, the stress of uncertainty, the stress of all of the mindfulness that we have to do. And then on the other side, we lost a lot of our coping stuff, right? So right. I personally love to eat out. I don't do it a ton, but I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, couldn't eat out. I like to go to the movies. Couldn't go to the movies. I like to hang out with my friends. Couldn't hang out with my friends. So you've got this massive increased stress. And then this decreased ability to engage in the coping behaviors that you would have that you would have used before. So I am not shocked in the least that people are suffering. Right. You know, even if it's not totally to the clinical level, but just, you know, feeling out of sorts, feeling kind of anxious, feeling uncertain, questioning their coping and something else just as an FYI. Uh, there was a great article in the New York Times called Why Zoom is So Terrible. And it's not that Zoom itself is terrible. It's this kind of um, conversation in the sense that when you're, when you're virtual, there's these little delays, there's little blips in video, and your brain is working a lot harder to process information than it would if you were in a meeting with a group of people in a room. Huh, I didn't know And that. you're not even aware of it. Yeah, because you're not even necessarily aware of the delays in video or the delay in audio. But, you know, it's kind of there. You get these little blippy things that happen. I was on a meeting this morning with my boss and kept freezing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But your brain is aware of it. And so your brain is working really hard to try to figure out facial expressions that it can't quite see and figure out that slight delay in language and figure out that slight delay in video and then put all that information together to make it make sense into a conversation. So it's why people feel really tired, huh? That you know, sense. with some of that at the end of a zoom day where it's like, why am I so tired? I sat at, I sat at home and I was just online. Well, that's why. Huh? That's fascinating actually. Yeah. So with that, so I, I've read some things on how, um, especially with mindfulness, I know I'm, I'm jumping all over the place here, but with mindfulness, they're trying to pull you essentially out of your unconscious and more conscious to be in the moment. It, am, am I saying that correctly? A little bit? There's maybe not. Kind okay. Of, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing at the right star maybe, but not yeah. on it. Um, yeah, you're, you're in the galaxy. Yeah. You're, you're uh, good. You're, you know. So with this pandemic though, is there, can it, do you think long-term it might be a good thing that it's pulling people out of these 
like routines and patterns in some way that it's making them be more aware of what's going on, like short term, maybe pain and discomfort, but potentially long term um, success or or am I off the boat here on that one? No, I mean, I think for some people, per- perhaps, I mean, some people um, are really enjoying working from home. Yeah. You know, and that was something they didn't have the opportunity to do before. Um, and they so they're really liking that part. Um, some people have taken up new hobbies with a vengeance, right? Right, yeah. At the beginning of this, you know, you heard all these people going, if you're not learning to play guitar, you're like failing the pandemic. <laughs> I, bought a, I bought a piano and tried to There you go. Yep, I'm, right, I'm right. one of those guys. You know, and by the way, let me just tell everybody, you're not failing the pandemic. If you're getting <laughs> up, basically, and, you know, you at least got your sweatpants on and you're, you know, eating some decent food, you're not failing the pandemic. Um, I mean, so, but you know, people, some people are like getting in shape. They bought a bunch, you know, like we know that the home gym equipment business has just gone through the roof. Right. Right. Um, so people are maybe working out more, they're exercising, they're engaging in hobbies. So for some people, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's not going to be a bad thing. Some people are also learning they can cope with more than they thought they could. And that's not necessarily bad. Some people's relationships, well, you know, are not good because they're together all the time. But for some people, that's been a good thing. So it's very variable. Um, I don't know, you know, what's going to happen once things kind of go back to quote unquote normal, whether people will just shift back or whether they'll continue to engage in those new habits. I think some of the work from home will obviously stay, but some of it won't, you know, it'll be necessary to go back. Um, it's choice making, right? It's going to be right. a choice as to, well, am I going to stick with this or am I not going to stick with this now that the pandemic is over? Some of it's probably going to be the needs of the moment and the needs of the environment. Um, mindfulness is always a good thing if you if you can practice it because it, in terms of coping, it will absolutely help you to cope because the bottom line is it's not so much that you're trying to get out of your unconscious. What you're trying to do is get out of like the past and the future. Right. And just be where you are, like be in the moment that you're actually in and engage in whatever you're engaging in. Because a lot of us are doing things. The human mind automates a lot, which is awesome. Is it like 90? Pardon? Was it was it like ninety or ninety five percent or something like that? That it's... I I don't know, but it's a okay. lot. I mean, if yeah. you think about that, your day and the kinds of things you do, you get up in the morning, you don't sit there and go, "How do I brush my teeth?" Oh, hmm. driving freaks me out when I'm driving for forty five minutes and I'm going, "Did I hit anybody?" Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah that's called highway hypnosis. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, where you like I made turns and I got it, and I have no idea how I got from point A to point B. Right. Um, but we so we automate a lot, and that's that can be helpful. But the not so great part of it is that we're sort of not in our lives a lot, because instead of you know, well, I'm brushing my teeth right now, and what is that like? We're thinking about something that's going to happen or not happen, or we're worried it's going to happen like five years from now. Um, and the problem with that is our mind is really powerful. So whatever we're thinking about that may or may not happen five years from now will feel like it's happening right now. Right. So you so, essentially experience twice if you're worrying about something. I think yeah, Mark or Twain you said something like that. experience it. That's what's sad is yeah, the things <laughs> that we worry about. I mean, how many of the things that we worry about really occur? Right. 
yeah. Not that many, but we experienced the worry and we experienced it as though it did happen because our minds, you know, are super powerful that way. Trying to avoid the saber tooth tiger outside, like you're saying. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So if you are more mindful and you bring yourself into the present, it's not necessarily it's going to be pleasant because sometimes it is. And that's, that's a myth about mindfulness is like, oh, if you're just meditating and you're focusing on the present, all oh, will be peaceful. Not necessarily because if the right. present isn't peaceful, it's not going to be peaceful. But what it helps you to do is cope in the moment. Something I think people don't really realize is the only time you ever have in your life is the exact moment you're in. That's right. it. You can't do anything about what just happened five, five minutes ago. You're not five minutes from now. You could think about five minutes from now, maybe plan, but you can't do it yet. So kind of when things are really stressful, it can really help you to just figure out what do I need right now? Just what do I need in the moment that I'm in? And then try to give yourself that, whatever it is. Well, you know, I need ice cream. Okay, well, can I have ice cream? I need to talk to my friend. I need to work on this project. Um, I need to get up and move for, you know, because I can tell my back aches, my leg, like you can do a little body scan. How do I feel physically? Well, my legs are kind of aching. My back, I've been sitting here for hours. Well, let me get up. You know, just paying attention to what the body is going through and what the body needs can take you a long way. Um, where am I sort of psychologically? And if you're if you're engaged in an activity, like really be in that activity. So if you're eating, like what does this food taste like? Not just I'm forking food into my mouth while I'm, you know, I don't know, binge watching Netflix or something. Right. Um, you tend to eat more when you do that, first of all. And you eat less when you are mindful of it, when you're really tasting your food and just sort of like enjoying that experience. Um, so that's really, you know, mindfulness is just about sort of being where you are and coping in the moment. And that's a lot easier than I'm going to try to go out for the next year and figure out how I'm going to cope with every single thing. You you can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had this, I had this uh, time, I think it was two years ago, I saw a Buddhist monk on top of a mountain and I was like, they seem like the most peaceful people I've ever, I'm going to try mindfulness and meditation for a year. I'm just going to mm -hmm. throw myself into it. And what I found early on was I was doing a lot of activities that were forcing me to be in the moment because mm -hmm. it, it a lot, just for someone who's constantly depression and worry and anxiety, it was like, if I go skydiving, if I'm not thinking about not anything but skydiving <laughs> you know <laughs> you, yeah. you're gonna have a bad time right or mountain requires, bike requires focus yeah a lot of these extreme sports and um for me being a former professional pole vaulter pole vault was like that for a long time until towards the end when i could uh hit a takeoff you know not be upside down yet and just know exactly what was going to happen it kind of it allowed me it to automated. think more yeah it yeah. became automated and it stopped being fun really quick because uh you start to enjoy that. But I, I got to a point what you were talking about was when I was meditating, you'd be in these moments where you just sit in this emotion that in the past I might have tried to avoid, you know, but you would just mm -hmm. sit there. And then what I found was eventually it would pass, you know, if I just experienced it yeah. instead of ran from it, which was extremely powerful <laughs> for me. Yeah, acceptance, right? Acceptance, which is sort yeah. of a part of a Buddhist philosophy is acceptance. Right. of what's going on and detachment and detaching, not in the sense that we in a Western world tend to think of detachment, but detachment in the, in the sense that, that you, you don't 
attach an expectation in essence to an experience or to a person or even to yourself that you just experience that whatever it is, it is right. Because detach attachment and expectation is what breeds disappointment. It's, it's not that the thing itself was disappointing. It's that it did not compare to what you thought it would be. Right. Right. So if you, if you have a mental image, you attach to that mental image, Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to do this. going to be so much fun, blah, 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 blah. And then it is not that then you are disappointed, but not because this was what it was. It just didn't match. Yeah. When you don't have this, you don't, you don't have the attachment. You don't have the expectation. You just walk into an experience and go, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm just going to have it, whatever it is. There isn't disappointment because you didn't have an expectation. Yeah. You, you still may not like it. You might go, oh, I didn't really enjoy that. It, was, it just wasn't my thing. I, it wasn't fun. I, did, I didn't like it. But that's really different than, oh, I thought it was going to be this. It was. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of two things. I, I, like Mark Twain once said, expectation is the death of joy. I think that was attributed to him. But I wrote that on my, my walls for a while, you know, <laughs> so I'd see yeah. it every day. Yeah. And because it, it's true. It's yeah. true. Especially because our expectations are usually way unrealistic. Right. We have good imaginations. <laughs> we do. And, but then and we, we put we put the bar up so high. Yeah. That that it the you know, the event or ourselves or other people are just never gonna get over that bar. Yeah. It and then at two, it seems like expectations as you were talking about, if if we break mindfulness down at its basic form is just living in the moment. Expectations are in this future, right? That I'm I'm gonna get mm -hmm. to here. So just bringing it back to the moment is, is key. I think. Yeah. And even like if it. you have a future goal, what are you doing right now to get to that goal? Because there, you know, if you focus on an outcome, you're never going to get it. That's, that's the irony. Right. You know, if you want to be an astronaut, you could sit there and go, I want to be an astronaut. I really want to be an astronaut. I really want to be an astronaut. I want to be an astronaut. Okay. You want to be an astronaut. Awesome. What are you doing about it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you, I, you know, and what could I do right now? to work towards becoming an astronaut. And, you know, there's a, there's a, I think it's a Japanese expression that says the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Yeah. Yep. Well, this, the secret is it doesn't begin with a single step. It's all single steps. Yeah, it, exactly. My, I <laughs> have entire, a entire thousand miles. I had a friend who was thinking about that. He's like, well, say it's a hundred steps. If we use this step analogy, and if you only focus on a hundred, you just miss 99% of life essentially. And, like, and you'll never get there. That's never, the problem. You right. will never get to that space because you don't take those 99 steps. So it's not about that you don't plan or that you don't think about the future at all. That That's not the point of mindfulness, but it's, it's where can you act? And where are you feeling and where are you being? You're being in this moment. This is the only moment you ever have to be. This is the only moment you ever have to affect change. Right. And when you focus more small that way, things become a lot more doable because you can break it down to, well, what if I really wanted to be an astronaut, what could I do today? Maybe it's Google how to be an astronaut. <laughs> right. well, step one. Step one. <laughs> right. Find out what kind of degree do I need to have? What kind of, you know, what's the, what are the physical fitness requirements? What are these kinds of things? And then you start from there and you start going, okay, well, I have to have a, you know, a degree in astrophysics. All right. Well, how would I get a degree in astrophysics? And you break it, you know, you break it down into these very small pieces 
that are then doable. And anything, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big person of metaphors and expressions. Yeah, like me too. The ones, that I, yeah, the ones that I make up, my, my students call them elogisms. Um, but I use a lot of other people's too. So there's a, you know, there's an old uh, kind of joke about how to eat an elephant. One bite at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and life is like a giant elephant. You know, you, you, you do it a bite at a time. And I actually think I discovered a little trick I'll, I'll teach you and, and your listeners because it really works. When I was getting my doctorate, I had to do a dissertation. And um, a dissertation is this, this huge research project. You've got to write this big page. It's like a book. Um, it took three years. And, it, you know, it's like 130 pages or something. I don't know. I hated every second of it. Just right. not my thing. I did, really <laughs> didn't enjoy it. I don't like research. It was not my thing. And I kept procrastinating and I'm not generally a procrastinator, but I kind of started to realize that I would say, you know what, on Saturday, I'm going to spend five hours working on my dissertation or something. I'm not going to spend five hours working on my dissertation. I hate it. So Saturday would come around and I would find every reason not to even do it. Right. Because part of procrastination is you build a goal that's too big that, you know, you're not going to achieve and, and nobody likes to fail. So you just don't do it. You know, if you can't, if you don't start, you can't fail. Yeah. So what I started doing was, and I realized this sort of, I call it the mind trick because it's, you're sort of tricking yourself is I started saying, I am going to write a half a page or I'm going to read one journal article or I'm going to work for 10 minutes. So I figured it was either a task or a time limit. And what I realized is if you set a goal that feels absolutely doable, it's got to feel doable. It should not be challenging. This idea that you should set these challenging goals, no. Very few people can really do that. Elite athletes, some other people can really set these big challenging goals and really focus. But the average person out there, no. Right. So I started doing that. And it was great because, you know, let me let me ask you a question. If you you're an exercise guy, it sounds like. But let's say you never you didn't exercise and you were going to start going to the gym and you made a goal that you were going to walk on a treadmill for 20 minutes and you walked on the treadmill for 10 minutes. How are you going to feel? Oh, like I failed. Right. Because you yeah. did. Right. Yeah. Right. You set a goal. You had 20 minutes. You failed. You didn't even you did half. Right. Right. So is that going to motivate you to want to go back to the gym again tomorrow? Oh, no. No, because you failed. And I that failed. sucks. Probably fail again. Okay. <laughs> okay. But let, so let's say that you set a goal that you're going to walk for five minutes on the treadmill and you walk for 10 minutes on the treadmill. How do you feel? Oh, it succeeded. It's the same anymore. 10 minutes. Right. That's awesome. That's a really yeah. great way of looking at that. Yeah. The, the idea is how you feel about what you accomplish has nothing to do with what you accomplish. It has to do with what you said you were going to accomplish. Huh. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I do. I, I do that same thing. I, I set it too high. Like um, a couple years ago, I wrote a, a pole vault book and same kind of thing. Like I put it off for two years because I was like, I don't know how to write a book. I've, I've written a thesis, which is like a 30, 40, 50 page paper, similar. you know, but similar. But, you know, now I'm more telling stories instead of boring research that, you know, <laughs> the general population it. doesn't want to read. And what kind of shifted in my head was two things was I'm just going to write a chapter a week. So I was like, I, 
and and I got it done in three months because I just did a chapter a week, you know. Yep. So I got my twelve chapters done, and it was it was chewable, you know, at that point. And then it has to, it has to feel doable. And this yeah. is a great trick when people are depressed. Okay. I teach my depressed clients this because when you're depressed, you don't have a lot of energy. You don't feel like you can do much, but, but your house is like, you know, it's starting to get bad, right? You yeah. got dishes in the sink, you got laundry piling up. And the more it piles up, the more you feel like just staying in bed and doing nothing because it feels overwhelming. And so the last thing you want to do is set a very challenging goal. I'm going to do all the laundry. No, you're not. Right. And, and, and what is the hardest part about any project? Just starting. Getting started. Yeah. But the reason getting started is so hard is because if you set a bar that's too high, why would I start? I can't finish. Like you said, I, I failed. So right. I don't want to fail. So I'm just going to roll over and go back to sleep. So the, whatever the goal is, it has to feel absolutely doable. So it literally can be, I'm going to wash one dish. Because guess what? If you wash a dish, that's one dish that's clean, that wasn't clean before. Right. And once you get started, the likelihood is you will do more. That's the hardest part for someone with depression, I would imagine. Or I don't have to imagine because I've been there. But yeah. it's uh, even washing a dish sometimes feels like the hardest thing in the entire world. It is. You but know? if you still feel like you could do it, it, it okay. might be hard, but hard is not impossible. Right. Right. And that's a really, that's an important thing to get. If you're depressed and you're feeling it's it's not impossible. I can do it. Will I do it is, is the question, but it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to contemplate washing one dish than washing all the dishes in the sink. For sure. Yeah. And if you washed one dish, you succeeded. Yeah. And now, you know, you succeeded success begets success. Success is rewarding. You feel better because you succeeded and you got something done. So more or less motivating to get up tomorrow and wash another dish. Gotcha. More motivating, right? Because right. I had success. I did it. And if you'd wash two dishes, you doubled. Yeah. I like that. Like when, when I'm coaching, I'm always, I, I wrote on every single page of that book, slow progressions are the best progressions, right? As an idea that um, similar to what we're talking about, but if, if uh, you do too much too quick, you burn out. Like I see that we were talking about exercise earlier. People go to the gym, you know, and no one follows a resolution more than a, you know, a couple days or a week. It just, right. that's not how it works. Um, but, you know, when you think about it in depression, it's almost like just getting out of bed might be that first step and dishes it might be think. step five down the road, you know. Well, it can be. I mean, you could set a goal. If that's the case, you could set a time goal. So it may be, I'm going to get up for five minutes. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to get up, you know, and walk around or something for five minutes. Or I'm going to go outside for five minutes because sunlight's good for depression. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's it turns it kind of on its head what most people think of as goal setting because we're always right. being told, you know, every motivational poster in the world, you know, reach higher, set goals. But it really does make people feel like a failure when they can't reach that goal. And a lot of times you aren't going to initially. Right. And that's why you have to pay attention to how you feel when you're setting the goal. If it doesn't feel doable, it's not a good goal. It should not, it literally should not be challenging. Right. It should be something you absolutely feel you can accomplish. And that's why you set them very small. 
And that's how I got my whole, you know, dissertation done. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I did only write a half a page, but, it, but at least I've got a half page more than I had the day before. Yeah. But usually when I, when I, but, and it made me want to approach it again though, the next day, because it felt good instead of, I said I was going to do this and I didn't, and I didn't get that done. And now I feel depressed and it's bad. You know, that, that, that sort of punishing thing is not motivating. No. Reward is motivating. Right. Like and this success is rewarding. This is a reward for me because I've had this idea for a couple of years too. I seem to almost have to, it's like a two year plan in my head. I have to like get up okay. the courage to do it. And, uh, it, it took weeks and weeks and weeks just to shoot you the first email to have this conversation, you know, but that was all I did that day. Cause it was like, well, if okay. it's an, if it's an, no, yeah. And, but, uh, that's why we're here today is cause I just sent an email and we're here, you know, it's uh, which is cool. I'd, I'd love to keep talking about goals, but I had a couple other questions about cognitive sure. behavioral therapy, if we can get sure, there. Sure. Um, for me, cognitive behavioral therapy has been awesome, especially mixed with mindfulness. And you told me last time we talked that mindfulness and cognitive behavioral ter therapy are essentially the same cloth in a way that yeah. they're intertwined. Um, can you just explain how it works and how it, alleviates depression and anxiety or helps it alleviate depression and anxiety? Well, the basic um, principle behind cognitive, <clears throat> cognitive therapy in particular is that it's not so much what happens to us that makes us have an emotional reaction. It's what we think about what happens to us. So thoughts are mediators. Okay. And you can kind of see this out in the world. So let's say you are on the freeway and the traffic stops. Like there's something ahead, you can't see what it is, but the traffic comes to a stop. And you might you look to your left and there's like a guy in a suit and an expensive car and you can tell he's like really ticked off and he's yelling and he's honking his horn and you know, waving his hand like, get out of my way, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe there's somebody you know to the right of you um, who's got their radio turned up and they're like, you know, bopping along to the music and maybe you're somewhere in the middle, like you're kind of frustrated, but you're also just going, well, you know, it is what it is. I guess I'll put on a podcast and, um, you know, listen to my buddy, Sean, talk about depression because it's awesome. Right. <laughs> the three of you are all having the same event, right? The, the event is exactly the same. So yeah. why are you reacting differently? Because you're thinking about it differently. Right. You know, guy over here is thinking everyone should get out of my way. I, I, I'm going to be late. I have this important meeting. Why is this happening? Blah, blah, blah. Guy over here or girl over here is going, well, you know, second traffic, nothing I can do. Just going to listen to my tunes. Okay, dude. And you might be again, somewhere in the middle, like, well, this kind of sucks, but there's, you know, what am I going to do? I'll, I know I'll be productive. I'll listen, you know, to my, to my podcast. So your reaction is mediated between the event and the emotion is what are you thinking about the event? And people who get depressed or get anxious tend to have either depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts. And it leads them to have these the sort of negative emotional states. And then unfortunately, what, what we think about things also leads us to engage in behaviors. So if you have somebody that let's say has always wanted to take a dance class where they, they would love to learn to dance. I always want to take a dance class, but an anxious person is going to be thinking, 
people are going to look at me and I'm, I'm going to be, I'm not going to be a good dancer and people are going to laugh and they're going to, you know, make fun of me and I don't want that to happen. That would be bad. So I'm not going to go take a dance class. And that's, that's a cognitive distortion, which lots of people do. And a, a cognitive distortion is essentially a way of thinking that doesn't match reality. And we all do it to some extent. And we all have sort of our favorite cognitive distortions. That particular one is fortune telling. And, and it also has some ca catastrophizing. So fortune telling is I read the future. You know, if you ask people, do you, do you believe in psychics and stuff? Most people would say no. And yet, and yet we fortune tell constantly. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> A lot of mind reading going on. Yeah. Yeah. We, we mind read, we fortune tell, we catastrophize. I know what will happen, which is mind reading and it will be terrible. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's a list of these, right? Like they're called automatic yes. negative thoughts, like ants. Absolutely. I think is, you can yeah. Google them, cognitive distortions. There's a whole list of them. Um, and again, people kind of have their favorites, you know, the ones they sort of do all the time. Um, catastrophizing is very popular. Mind reading, fortune telling, all or nothing thinking, sort of black and white thinking yeah, is polarizing. very popular. Um, and then we just assume, though, the interesting thing about it, and this is sort of a human nature thing is because we're not really logical by nature. We assume that if we think it, it must be true. Thoughts are not truth. Right. <laughs> you know, feelings are not truth. Truth yeah. is truth. And we have no way of knowing what would happen. You know, what if you went to the dance class and you were the best dancer there and then you started competing and you started winning all this prize money and you became famous and you ended up on Dancing with the Stars, you know, or something like that. Right. Who knows? <laughs> no, the, the fact is we have no idea and you have no way of knowing what will happen unless you go do it. But what's super sad to me about, you know, especially like anxiety around that is it's not just a thought and a feeling, it's a behavior that therefore I never go take a dance class because I assume this negative outcome. Also with anxiety, what you get from a, a sort of thinking standpoint, anxiety at its very basis, and this is very simplified. So, you know, the, it's more complicated, but a very simple basis. Anxiety generally is an overestimation of threat. So I think that whatever I'm imagining is going to happen is highly threatening in some way, either physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, it's very threatening. Um, so I overestimate how threatening it actually is. And then it's an underestimation of coping. Hmm. And those two things together cause anxiety. If yeah. you didn't overestimate the threat, even if you weren't sure about your coping, you would have less anxiety and vice versa. Even if the threat seemed really high, but you totally believed you could cope with it, you hmm. would have less anxiety. Wow. I've never, I've never heard it put that way before. That's incredible. I'm just that good, Sean. No. Yeah. I, that's what I'm talking <laughs> that's to you. The Beck, that's the Beck model. <laughs> if you read Aaron Beck's work, he's the founder of, of cognitive therapy. That's basically his model. But if you think about it and if you have anxiety, you can kind of see it. Yeah. You can see how you... You know, you think of something and you just feel like it's it's going to be terrible, you know. Um, and one of the ways to kind of counteract that, that, that I teach people a lot, and I use myself as I have what's called a scale of terribleness. Um, and for me, a hundred on the scale of terribleness would be that all my limbs have popped off and I'm spreading blood everywhere. It's pretty that terrible. Would be, that would be pretty <laughs> terrible. So anything less than that is probably not that terrible. Okay. And, and most things are, you know, we are pretty fortunate to live in a country where we're not dodging bullets every day. 
you know, we're, there aren't death squads on the streets. We're not in a war war zone. You know, we have our, our problems and, and some of them can be pretty bad, but our everyday lives are generally kind of down here on the scale of a terribleness, not up here. So most of the things that we go through, they're not truly terrible. They're inconvenient. They're unpleasant. They're, you know, not fun. They're annoying. They're frustrating. But, but when you tell yourself something is terrible, again, because our thoughts lead to our emotional reactions, well, your mind goes terrible. Oh my God, that, oh, ah, you know, let me run yes. around and have, a, have an anxious response. It's reactive though, right? So it's hard to yes. control. So is this where you really, I, I say mindful, but I say, I don't know if I'm saying it loosely or not, but you really have to just have this awareness of the event and kind of almost categorize these things into thoughts. This is how I'm feeling and this is how I'm thinking. But that also takes a lot of, I would admit, for me, it took a lot of emotional energy in the same way that COVID's doing that to a lot of people yeah. too, you know. <laughs> it, it takes mental energy, but I'll tell you, it takes less mental energy once you learn to do it than being reactive does. Gotcha. Because think of the emotional energy that being emotionally reactive takes. Yeah. It's a lot to be, to, to get yourself very anxious, right? Yeah. Or, or to have a, a, a depressive reaction where there's similar kind of thoughts, but the thoughts are generally more, um, personal, like I would suck and I would be terrible and I, you know, it would be awful. And it's not so much related to other anxiety often is related to how other people react to, Oh, they'll laugh at me. They'll think I'm terrible. It's, this is more how we're going to feel about ourselves quite often with depression. But the, the cool thing with, with cognitive behavior, the linchpin of it is that recognizing just because I think something doesn't make it true. So how do I know what is true? And the way that you figure out what's true is by evaluating the thoughts. So you don't assume that because you think it, that's what's going to happen. So you evaluate for validity, which would mean, is this thought true or not? Right. And utility. And utility is, even if this thought is true, is there any utility in thinking it? Like hmm. dwelling on it. And that might be a thought from the past. Let's say something happened, you know, 30 years ago. And you, and you keep thinking about, well, but that happened, but that happened. Okay, it did happen. And you're Kids right. Kids stole my bad. candy bar in fourth grade. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And it was bad and they Still should not bothered. have done that. And it was, you know, there's nothing about that that was good. But how is it helping you in the moment in your life, in your relationships, in your work, in your emotions to dwell on that? So that thought might have validity, but it doesn't have utility. Okay. And then there's techniques to like thought stopping and some other things to help you not dwell on those things. The validity part is harder because people often don't, first of all, they don't distinguish thoughts from feelings. They quite often say, well, I felt uh, that that was not fair. Well, that's not a feeling. That's a thought. Right. Say that wasn't fair is a thought. And so you challenge thoughts. You never challenge feelings because feelings are just feelings and they don't have validity or not. They just are. They just exist. But you could challenge a, a, a thought that wasn't fair. And so you would look at, well, what's your evidence that whatever it was that happened wasn't fair? Define fairness. What's your evidence that it wasn't? What's your evidence that it was fair? And evidence has to actually be like factual stuff. It can't be other thoughts. It can't be feelings. Now, you know, you can, you can think something very strongly or feel something very strongly. It can still be completely false. You know, for a lot of time, everybody on the planet thought that the earth was the center of the universe, basically. 
and the planets went around the earth and everybody thought the earth was flat. I mean, they very much strongly believed that and it didn't matter how strongly they believed it, it was still wrong. So this, the strength of one's, you know, belief or feeling has nothing to do with the validity or veracity of your thought. Hmm. Facts are facts. So you have to kind of evaluate, well, what was this thing? So if you're to go back to my dance class thing, well, I just know I'll be a terrible dancer. Well, how do you, what's your evidence that you'd be a terrible dancer? Well, right. you know, I, when I was in high school, I didn't, I didn't dance well, or somebody told me I wasn't a good dancer. So somebody telling one person telling you that you're not a good dancer, is that actually, a, does that actually prove that you're, that you're not, or is that just that person's opinion? Right. That's where like looking into the past has helped me out some where you go, sure. um, I look into the past, this event happened and created some pattern or thought or reaction. I don't know what to call it. I'm not, I'm not the expert, mm -hmm. but you know, some, some pattern I fall into that creates this new thoughts or emotions or something. And if I can go back and go, oh yeah, it was that moment. It's easier for me to challenge that thought than right. if I'm just in the moment and going, where, why do I think this? There like where did this come from kind of a situation yeah. well it can really it can help sometimes and and cbt is pretty present focused but it's yeah. not that you never talk about the past or like why you might think what you think although again just like with determining why you're depressed we may not know why you think what you think sometimes okay. there's no way to determine that sometimes you can sometimes you can pinpoint and go oh, i remember exactly my mother said this or whatever and i started to think xyz um and the reason that can help you is because it actually reinforces the idea that thoughts are not true. Awesome. <laughs> They're not universal truths, right? They're just right. somebody said it. Yeah. You know, but that does, somebody saying something doesn't make it a fact. It, you know, it's, and, and it, go ahead. No, it just, um, it's difficult. I, I know, um, mm -hmm. when I was in the hospital, this the second, for, it's really hard. And I don't, I don't know what part of me this is. Maybe it's the athlete in me or something that made me the kind of athlete, but they gave us a binder of things to learn and I was having a rough day. So I read the whole entire binder and went right to the thought record pages. And I was like, yeah. I'm going to figure this out because this looks like it has something that's going to help me. Yeah. And I filled the whole thing out without telling you the situation because that would take too long. But I, I filled it out that said like, circle your hot thoughts. And I'm like, it's this one, it's this one, it's this one. And I came by, I still felt crappy. I went in the next day and told the story in front of everybody, gave it to the therapist that, that day. And I'm like, this is stupid. This doesn't work. CBT is garbage. And <laughs> I wrote, I filled it out the way I'm supposed to. And I threw it down and she just looked at me and goes, you circled your hot thought and wrote it down five times in red. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, not that's it, it right there. But I couldn't <laughs> see it. I, I literally wrote it, circled it multiple times. And it yeah. took a therapist to point out what was right in front of my face the whole time. And yeah. And I, I highly recommend that you, if you are depressed, if you have true, you know, if you're really diagnosed with anxiety, or you think you have anxiety, you have depression, so much better to go to therapy. And yeah. it doesn't mean that you're crazy or, you know, that you couldn't kind of figure out some things on your own, but this stuff is new to most people, it requires a certain skill. These are skills that you learn. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, you can teach yourself piano, but it's a heck of a lot easier <laughs> to learn piano with a piano teacher. I'm not good at piano. I can pluck the keys. That's about it. But Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's because, you know, but if you had somebody to show you. No, exactly. And that's where the therapy was 
it became kind of fun because um, I, I've read a lot of books and that's, I, I'm not, it's like reading a guitar book or like you said, a piano book. It, you yeah. can read it, but you don't get the intricacies of it or how to get, download the information in your brain and your, your, your body. Well, you don't faster. have feedback. You feedback. don't have feedback. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's part of the problem in life. We need feedback. We need You're right. correction. You're a pole vaulter. You've had coaching. Right. Right. And you yeah. do coach. Yep. How instrumental to your success was that coaching? Oh, f tenfold. Yeah. Right. I, I and, couldn't do and, it. And the best athletes in the world still have coaches. Right. Yeah. They attribute right? all of them. Like I've, I've never heard like an elite athlete on in any space, you know, take all the credits. I was like, oh, I got to thank my coaches and my team behind me. <laughs> you know, they do. But, I, but, it's, but it's interesting that even at that level, they still need feedback. Right. They still need somebody observing what they're doing and saying, you know what, when you're, you know, when you're hitting that ball, you're slicing too much to the left. That's why it's not going, you know, that's why it's ending up in the doubles alley. Like you need the feedback. It's really hard to learn with no feedback. Right. It really is. And, and learning these cognitive techniques, which are very powerful if done correctly and very frustrating if not. <laughs> like you'll, you'll have your experience of like, you know, what does this crap and it this doesn't is mean garbage. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, but when the, you learn it and, and, it, and it, it also can become automated, you know I mean? I, I don't just teach this stuff to my clients. I do this every day in my own life. Um, you know, I, I have a tendency to get depressed myself at times. So I have to like watch my own thinking. I have to be careful. I'm not fortune telling. Um, I use the mind trick all the time, these little tiny little goals. And it, it actually now becomes almost like a game. You can turn it into a game. Like if I'm ready to, I get ready to go somewhere, but I have like five minutes or 10 minutes before I actually have to leave. I will like set the timer and go, what can I get done in five minutes? That's and awesome. I like run around the house. It's like, <laughs> oh, I clean the toilet and that bathroom. I, I wash those dishes. Like it's amazing how much you can get done in a, pretty short amount of time and feel very accomplished. Like it feels really good. And then you don't have to do it later instead yeah. of, Oh, I, I only have five minutes. So I can't do anything. That's it, it. I found that too, is these tools were given to me for depression and anxiety. But when I started using them, I started using them with my athletes too, and mm -hmm. their performances increased like tenfold. And then they were telling me they were using them in school and I was using them in school and work and things like that. And it, I, I wish, I, I wish there was a way to introduce these sooner and maybe there is to people, but for me, it took, I had to go to a, a mental health hospital to, to even know these yeah. existed, Yeah. you know, um, is there resources out or I know you said you recommended a handful of books. There's a tons of them, but, um, do you have there's a ton, favorite there's ones? There's a ton of stuff out there. You know, there's, there's, uh, you can go on the Beck Institute website and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, just Google cognitive behavioral stuff. There's all kinds of workbooks. But again, I think it's really hard to just do it on your own. I think you could get some of it, but, you, but if you don't have that feedback and I, and part of the reason I know this is through working with clients who like, I'll teach them how to use a thought log and they'll do it. They still mess it up yeah. <laughs> because it's hard. Like they get it eventually, but they're, you know, when the evidence columns, they're putting in thoughts. Thoughts are not evidence. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, other thoughts are not evidence for other thoughts kind of thing. And I, and I see it in my students when I'm teaching my students to do this. I have them do some like sample thought logs when they actually have to do it on a, on a situation. 
And, you know, even my students who like, are they're in graduate school, they're learning all this stuff. We've been talking about it for weeks about cognitive work. They still quite often don't get it right. Yeah. And I have to, again, I provide the feedback to go, well, here's why. I know when I was learning it, I, you know, I was like, I'm very confused, you know, like what, what is this? And I really had to learn even just evaluating again, the difference between a thought and a feeling that just even starting there, people mix those up all the time. I still wrestle with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can be difficult. Do you know, this, this is kind of out of left field, but where would you put um, like intuition into the, would, would you consider that like a thought or a feeling or is that something completely a different? Thought. A thought, intuition's a yeah, thought. Because, because intuition is essentially a belief. Okay. Right. I believe this about that. Yeah. That's a thought. One of the ways to distinguish, and this is kind of, kind of a simplified thing, but but feelings are one word. Sad, mad, happy, frustrated, annoyed. Those are feelings. If it's a sentence, you know, and it's not what that's not I feel annoyed, I feel then that's a thought. Gotcha. I wish someone told me that a long time ago. <laughs> well, I try to keep it simple because I know this stuff is complex, but I mean, I really, you know, if I were the queen of the universe who must be obeyed, um, I would be teaching this to children in school. I mean, it would be like a subject in school because it, what, what it actually is based on is critical thinking and logic. Right. You know, it's really about logically evaluating is what I'm thinking matching reality as much as I can know reality. And if I can't know reality, cause like I haven't done it yet. Like again, if I come back to my da dance class thing, you don't know whether you would be any good. That's the bottom line. That That's the only realistic thought. I have no idea whether I would be good at this or not. You don't know. I feel like that would work with kids. Cause they, to me, they seem like natural um, scientists in itself where they're always experimenting and playing anyways. Well, and, and if you get in before they, learn a bunch of distortions, exactly, habitual yeah. distortions, and you can teach them sort of this logical basis. And the other thing I think it's really important from a mindfulness and just from a, um, a cognitive standpoint is stop caring so much. <laughs> Easier so, said you know, than done. <laughs> well, it is, but, but not really, because it, it depends on what your goal is. If you, if you set a goal, if you're going to go to the dance class and your goal is I want to be the best dancer in class. Well, that's a lot of pressure. Right. And you really could fail at that. You may not be the best dancer in class. And, and the fact is you may be the worst dancer. We don't know. But how about your goal is not to go be the best dancer? How about your goal is just to go have fun? Or your goal is to go meet some nice people. Or your goal is to just learn some dance steps, whether you're good at them or not. You cannot fail at those goals. I, I say that in, in, when I have pole vaulters for the first time because I see guys jumping jumping 19 feet or girls jumping 16 feet. And I go, if you just land in the pit and don't die, you're an official pole vaulter and you win. Yeah, if you get up and over, <laughs> right? If you, you don't even get up on the pole, yeah, you're doing good. Yeah, I don't even want them to go over a bar. If they just land and don't die, that's that's right. my step You didn't one. break your neck. That's yeah. success. You're alive. You get to do it again. Um, but does that make sense? There's an old expression – uh, about mind over matter and the expression is if you don't mind it doesn't matter right <laughs> and that and that's that's true if you went to the dance class and you sucked at it so what so what doesn't mean anything it only means something if you make it mean something and that is where your control is just don't make it mean something yeah i i did this book um it. it's 
there's a book called um, How to Train a Wild Elephant. I don't know if you've heard of it, but the idea is, is your brain's the wild elephant. And, you you know, the more you try and control the mind, the crazier your elephant's going to get. So, um, but it was uh, 50, 50 weeks of a mindfulness challenge. So, like week one was you would put um, a string on your left finger to remind you to try and do everything with your left hand that week. Whether wow. Yeah, and so it was, it kind of just took you out of the, future in the past and brought you into the moment and then it's out the of end, automation too that pulls you out of automation yeah exactly and i loved it um and then at the end of the week you flip to the next page and it tells you something to think about that were you frustrated that week and that week i was super frustrated like i, I couldn't edit <laughs> yeah, anything I, I try editing on a that. yeah <laughs> so i went i went hardcore on it where it's like just try brushing your teeth you know and i was like i'm gonna yeah. try and flip my computer the other way and edit a whole video with my left that didn't last too long <laughs> <laughs> it had taken a year. Sean. Yeah, I tried. Um, but the idea was um, on that last page, they go, well, that's your beginner's mind. Would you yell at a kid for falling off a bike for trying to learn it the first time? And then, exactly. yeah, from that moment, uh, it, it allowed me to go, oh, I'm a beginner at this. And I'm treating myself like an expert before I had that kind of message. And it, that helped me out a lot. Um, well, and, and that goes right back to the to towards the beginning of our conversation about expectation yeah. right and, and setting a bar that if you don't set a bar then whatever happens is okay right so you go to the dance class and you just go and you and and again you make a your goal can even just be to find out what it's like yeah. to go to a dance class and that's it it's perfect and yeah. you're not going to fail at that. And that's not threatening. And because, you know, you, it is, it's not an easy skill to control our thoughts. And sometimes we can't, you know, sometimes we do get a little overwhelmed or there's an event that's just so big that it over, it overwhelms and anybody would just be reactive to it. Um, but we can learn how to sort of direct our thinking. We can learn to evaluate our thinking. We can learn to shift our thinking from, you know, stuff that's just hurting us and putting us down and making us not be involved in our own lives to things that help us and motivate us and move us towards, towards behavior. And that's kind of the behavioral part of cognitive behavioral is when I work with depressed people, I, I tell them there's three gets that you need to try to do. Get up, get out and get moving get out of your bed, yeah. get outside on some level and get moving, do something. Because the depressed mind will tell you, oh, I'm just going to lay here and I'll feel better. Do you ever, do, do you ever feel better when you just lay there? No, never. No. But it took me a long right. time to learn that, you know? And Right. And I Same thing with isolating. I, yeah. I don't, don't go do anything. Don't talk to anybody. You'll feel better. Do you ever feel better when you're completely isolated? Yeah. I fall into the other trap is if I go out into a group of people, I'm going to bring them down. And then that's just another trap that is in my own head it's that I to, I'm very aware of it now, but, uh, yeah. In the yeah, past, it's thought, and what's your evidence, right? What's your evidence that you're like, telling you, geez, Sean, you're just a downer. Get away from us. Yeah. This is a slippery <laughs> trap, you know, where you, you yeah. go there, you have it. And then you, I'm not having fun because I'm depressed. <laughs> right. So then I assume everyone else and there's an automatic negative thought that just popped right. in and it's really fast. And that's what I find is sometimes it's, well, it's, it's like an av yeah, it's an avalanche. And that's been the, the hardest part is if I can catch it early enough or if I'm doing these things when I'm not depressed, which is, um, 
probably the most, <laughs> the best advice I could give anybody is that you don't do this stuff when you're in the fire. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you practice it when you're out of the fire. And then now I can almost like there's a fire alarm going off when a thought comes up, I can go, oh, wait, I need to pay attention to that. Or, hey, I have this really ins- powerful feeling. Is, is that accurate to the you know, yeah. What was moment. I thinking what when I, I had that feeling? Yeah. Because again, yeah. we don't, we don't, we never challenge feelings because feelings, you just have them, but you can look back and go, what was I just thinking before I had that feeling? So the thought precedes the feeling always. Is that how that works? Okay. Yeah. Because let's say right now, if I said to you, all right, Sean, I want you to think about the best thing that ever happened to you in your life. Yeah. And you really started to dwell on that. How would you feel? Pretty good. Best thing. Pretty good, right? Yeah. And if I said, all right, then I want you to switch and I want you to think about the worst thing that ever happened to you. I want you to really dwell on that. Then how would you feel? Yeah, horrible. Okay. But did anything actually happen? No, not at all. You just thought. Yeah. You just thought. You thought about something great and then you thought about something terrible and then you felt. What? Okay. I'm, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I could go no, down no, a rabbit hole. Good, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. I'm fine. If, so what's that, if you go into a room and just have like a weird vibe of the energy is just kind of strange, would that be a well, thought? You, you actually, you actually may be picking up on, on other people's tension. Like, you know, you can, you can, you can observe that. body okay. language and you can see, right. Yeah. Um, when somebody's unhappy with somebody else, like have you ever been in a restaurant and you look out the window and you see like a, a couple and their, you know, their body language is, you don't, you don't hear what they're saying, but you know, they're having an argument yep. or, you know, they're not, they're not happy. I mean, about 80% of communication has nothing to do with the words. Right. So you can absolutely read people's body language. And so you walk into a room, you can kind of feel that because your, your mind is, is decoding that information. It's so that- seeing the, sorry. Oh, no worries. Um, it's seeing the body language, right, of those people and the uh, the tension that they're holding in their body. You will, we, we do feel that. So that's, would that be a situation where like the feeling would come before a thought? Um, it's probably not either. It's more of a noticing, you know, it's an attention, okay. it's an attention thing. And there would be thoughts too, like I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, right? for sure. Making me uncomfortable. Um, and something, you know, the brain reacts, you have the amygdala is very much involved in emotional response. And so the brain can be reacting to, uh, you know, uh, attending to a, a, a feel and an environment or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, most of our emotional reactions, if you really do stop, you can, you can go back and go, oh, I started thinking about X Okay. or I was thinking this. Um, and even in a tense room, it might be your thought might just be, I want to get out of here. I don't like, I don't like this. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you're uncomfortable and, you know, maybe a little scared or those kinds of things. But usually um, feelings are the consequence of a thought or a behavior. But that's the good news, because if you can work on your thinking and you can work on your behaving, then you get the emotion. And we often reverse that. We say, well, I have to feel it to do it. No, you don't. I have to feel confident before I can go out and do something. Uh, no. Why would you be confident? Right. In fact, if you thought to yourself, oh, I'm very confident about this, that probably wouldn't be valid. <laughs> right. <laughs> because if you've never done it, you know, again, with the dance class, oh, I'm very confident I'm going to go be a great dancer. You could suck at it. Yeah. Expectations again, right? <laughs> right. But you go and you find out and, and it, 
you become confident by doing. And that's why doing is so important. It's why getting out, behaving, doing things, finding out how something feels is so important. Hmm. Because if you don't do that, you never know. And then you are like a mouse in a wheel in your own brain, right? You're just running, 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 running. Eventually, you get so tired, you fall off the wheel, and you're right where you started. You used up all that energy, and you got nowhere. So you kind of want to think almost like you're a detective, you know, a detective doesn't sit at their desk and go, hmm, I think that guy killed him. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to make, you know, I'm going to like charge him because I think he killed him because he, because he looks funny. You know, you got to go out and gather evidence, right? You may have a hypothesis, you know, like I probably honestly would be a bad dancer because I'm not, when I go dance, <laughs> I'm not a great dancer. It's a thought. <laughs> I could make a hypothesis, but maybe I would go and if I had feedback and a teacher, I could become a good dancer. Either way, I wouldn't care. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing, again, is to come back to if you go and you engage in behaviors without the outcome or the, or the assumption of failure or success, like you just don't go with that valence that it's more of an experiment. I'm gonna go find out what this is, just like you taste a food. There's no success in tasting a food. You don't go, I like it, that's success. Right. No, you just taste it to find out if you like it. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, okay. But that's not a success or a failure. It's just an experiment you found out. You gathered information. So you could go to the dance class, see how you do, you find out. Hmm. Whether I'm pretty good at it or not, I like it, I don't like it. These are great people. I, I would come just for the people, um, <clears throat> you know, oh, I met somebody and that's great. I've became friends with them, whatever. But if you don't ever engage in any, in any behavior, there's no opportunity for reinforcement. If you just sit there, you're never going to get reinforced because there's no opportunity for it. Yeah. So going out and being active also provides that opportunity for reinforcement. You know, when you go out and you pole vault and you do well, you get ran, you get feel reinforced. But even if you don't do well, you went out and did it, and it still might feel good physically just to do it, to be out in the sunshine, to know that you can do something other people can't do. I would never pull vault in a million years, um, you know, right? So even right. if you if you go out not with the intention of I'm gonna get over a certain bar, but you just go out with the intention of just enjoying yourself, you can't really fail. No. I like one one question you brought up there is you were talking about just not caring. Like where was where's the line with that? Uh, is it self-deprecating thoughts somewhere around there? Because there's a point where I, I or maybe you don't. Maybe you really just don't care what other people think, and you, as long as you're enjoying yourself, right? Kind you of. Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you just yeah, the thing is to own your own power. You have power whether you think you do or not. That's the that's not you. You have power because you exist. You you right. change the world because you're here. The really the only choice you have is whether you change it for kind of better or worse. Um, so you can give other people as much power as you'd like to, or as little as you would like to, by and large. I mean, yeah, you know, some people have more power than bosses, you know, whatever. But why do you care what the guy on the street? thinks like right. are, are, is that person's <laughs> thought you know if that guy walks by you and he looks at you funny or are his thoughts gonna like leap out of his head and you know rip your head off or or what what somebody else's thoughts only have the power you give them yeah it's strange i wrestle with that a lot just being um like a guy who runs things online right so you have an audience and i have to be conscious of what the audience wants but at the same time i don't want to care what they think at all <laughs> i want to follow my own thoughts and um 
my own um, experiment with, um, I want to know, I don't know what I'm into, but at the same time, if I right. do that, there, there's a hard balance there for me, especially, um, especially online where people tell me they want this, but I'm into this, but if I don't care what they want, then the business kind of fails. <laughs> Unless you find a different too. audience that also likes what you like. And that's why I'm here, right? you know? Yeah. yeah. And you and you see a lot of entertainers like that, right? They do stuff that some people hate. Look oh, at Lady yeah. Gaga. You know, right. when Lady Gaga was first coming <laughs> up, I mean, the meat dress and all that. Honestly, I didn't like her. I was like, oh my God, this is just nuts. Yeah. And then I really started like just listening to her sing, you know, listening to her music. And the girls got pipes. Yeah, she she really does. She's very, you know, I, I was used to be a singer. She's got talent. She really does. And it, you get kind of past that. And once she got well known, she's very smart because once she got well known, notice she dropped most of that. Right. That was just to get the audience. But it, she also, you know, got publicity by being very outrageous. Right. So there's an audience for everything. It's just figure. It's just finding that, you know, that particular audience. And I'm not saying don't care at all ever about what other people think is. I think that's a bad message. You hear that yeah, sometimes, right. you know, don't care about anything. You know what? I think you should care about the feelings and the thoughts of people who care about you. So, because again, we need feedback, right? So if you're out there and you're just being a total jerk in the world, and somebody you care about, who you know knows you well, and they love you, and they have good intentions, and they come to you, and they go, dude, you're being a jerk. And I'm telling you that because, you know, you're really alienating people, and you're about to lose your job, and, you know, what? and I don't want to see that happen to you. That's why I'm telling you this. You know, that, you should pay attention to that. You should care about what about that person's thought, because that feedback from somebody who cares about you and has your interest at heart is very valuable. What I'm saying is the random person on the street, you know, who doesn't like the way you dress. I normally have blue in my hair. My hair is usually about half blue. That's awesome. I just don't right now because I just got it cut. I'm going to get it done on Thursday. The blue is going back in. Yeah. And I have women come up to me on the street and go, oh, my God, I love your hair. And I just, you know, I wish I had the courage to do that. I'm like, it doesn't take any courage. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, just and and people will compliment you like you just complimented me. And if you don't like it, die over it. That's that's the thing. You can always dye your hair darker and it'll cover the blue. It doesn't matter if you don't if you don't like it. But, you know, you, you start to actually find out that people appreciate a little bit of individuality and um, being your own person and saying your own truth and the things you like, you know, I'm a huge nerdy geek and I don't care. Right. And yet I get this thing, my, my, <laughs> not that long ago, but when I was a little bit younger, I, I had a group of students that actually had me made this little bracelet for me that called me the queen of cool. Oh my God, it's not cool. <laughs> but that's because I came so far around the other direction Right. Yeah. I'm so far nerdy and so far geeky that they they found that to be cool because I wasn't trying to be anything else. You're authentic. Yeah. There's a there yeah. seems to be just a that seems to be the, the key in like being authentic versus trying I mean if you're trying to be something you're not, then that's probably some sort of a thought thing you're future whatever else again it so. is then you're not going to succeed at it i no. mean that's that's the other thing you can succeed in being yourself but it's pretty hard to succeed in not being yourself right so just embrace you, it you can try but why why you know why do it um and the thought the thought behind it too is that you're the assumption is they're thinking badly about you how do you know 
maybe they're looking at you going, wow, love that hair color, love that jacket, love that thing, whatever it is. Um, you don't know what other people are thinking. It's really kind of none of your business. Yeah. Is, is, the, is the answer important? Like if you were to ask somebody? No. Not, not Again, not unless you care about the answer. Right. I, was I mean, wondering. I really, if somebody walked up to me and said, I hate your hair, honestly, I don't care. <laughs> I really, so what? Yeah. Why would that matter to me? I, because I might look at somebody's hair and not like their hair. Why would that matter to them? Does this it's go back to opinion. the, the vid, vid, uh, validity kind of part you were talking to? Like, does Utility. this information, yeah. yeah, does this information help me in my present moment? And if it doesn't, it's just wasted information. Just get rid of it. Well, and it's just somebody's opinion. Right. So I have my opinion. Somebody else has their opinion. Who cares? I mean, it's just an opinion. Opinions don't have any weight in the world yeah. unless they are, you know, a judicial opinion or an opinion about your work. <laughs> again, people you should care about, you know, again, your whole family comes to you and tells you you're being a jerk. That opinion matters because now it's affecting your relationships. It's having an impact in your life. But if the guy on the street you know, thinks you dress funny or something. Well, maybe you think he dresses funny. Should he, should he care about what you think? Right. I, I, only, I, I only ask because uh, when I first started learning this, um, I had somebody come up and I had, I had one of the therapists go, well, you can always ask and then you'll get your answer if you don't you can. know. And well, but you're probably not going to ask random people on the street, right? No, but I did because I, I, I don't, I just, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd too. Um, or we might be nerds in the same way or different ways. Who knows? Okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot nerds of types unite. of nerds. Exactly. Um, I like data. So I was like, I wonder what they're thinking. And then if they told me what they were thinking and if they, let's say I had blue hair too or something and they were like, I really hate your blue hair. And then I'd ask why, kind of like a child in a way, why do you hate my blue hair? And if they didn't have an answer, then I was like, oh, well, that information is not important and I'd be out of there. But it took a lot of work too, you know, like I didn't, it was a lot of questions that didn't, I didn't need to do either where it seems like now, if I was to do this again, it, I would just go, well, no matter what the answer is, it's not going to affect me in this moment. So eh, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the information is important to know, then yes, you know, and, it, and an example might be um, you are at work and you walk down the hall and your good buddy walks by you and doesn't say hello you're going to make an assumption about why that happened based on you, not on based on him. So you're going to, you know, depending on who you are, you're going to think, Oh my God, maybe he's mad at me. Why didn't he say hi to me? Or you might think, wow, what a jerk. He couldn't even say hello to me. What's up with that? Or you might think, Oh gosh, I hope he's okay. He didn't even like seem to notice me. You know? And again, all those thoughts though, have nothing to do with him. It's, it's the person having the thought. Right. And if it's really important to you to know, then go ask him. Hey, dude, saw you earlier. Why didn't you say hello? Are you okay? What's going on? And it could be something that you never would have even thought of. He had his earbuds in and was thinking about a problem and just literally did not see you. That's why asking questions was so helpful for me because I had all these assumptions. And every time I've, I'd ask people, it was more often than not, none of the thoughts in my head. So then instead of... Yep. Yeah, or correct. Or correct. So instead of even trying to guess, I would just, again, like a child, hey, why? <laughs> you know? And uh, I'd yeah. get my answer. And that's evidence. evidence that's yeah. how you gather evidence, right? Yeah. So if you were to do a thought log and you're looking at that evidence, call, call, that's evidence. If you don't have any evidence, go find it. 
Right. And if you're trying to figure out if your thought is valid or not, and you really don't have any evidence for the thought or against the thought, you could try to find evidence. Yeah. But again, that's how you go do an experiment though too. Like I, I know I'd be a terrible dancer. Well, how could you find out if you're going to be a terrible, you could go take a dance class and see if you're a terrible dancer. Yeah. So you can have the hypothesis, but it's, it's not the facts until you. Yeah, you're not running the experiment to, to prove, you know, the hypothesis or whether it's null or not. So um, that's the active part. You know, that's the behavior. Get out there and do some things and just acting helps us feel better from the standpoint of control because we tend to feel out of control when we're not being active um, and active for depression, if you, there's two kinds of activities that tend to help. One is mastery. And that would be the activity of, of something that requires some skill, mm-hmm. um, that you know how to do, or that you're learning how to do master activities and pleasure activities, things that you either still enjoy or used to enjoy with the hope that that pleasure kind of comes back as you do it or some or both, right? You might have a mastery activity that you really enjoy. Um, and engaging in those things on a regular basis. But I, I just know from my experience, my own experience of working with clients is that as long as it's not destructive, doing something is going to be better than doing nothing like 99% of the time. Hmm. So, and uh, the, go ahead. You can go. That's okay. And the other thing is it never matters what you're not doing. Right. So when people say, I'm not going to do what I'm not going to use drugs, I'm not going to, do this other, whatever it is. So what? <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're not, you know what? I'm not skydiving right now. Who cares? We're not doing a lot of things right now. <laughs> There's like a billion things that we are not doing in the moment and none of those things matter. So it's always about what are you going to do? And if you're depressed, especially, you can actually just make a list and pick one, you know, like, because it can be hard to think, right? It can be hard right. to think of something to do when you're depressed. And then that just becomes tiring. Like I can't think of anything. So I'm just not going to do anything. Again, but if you had like a list of, you know, basic things and they can, you could actually branch them out from super simple things. Um, like I'm just going to get up and walk down the hall a couple times to something more complex. Like, you know, I'm going to take a drive somewhere and go visit my friend or do some other thing. Um, and just pick one and do it because it, it makes you feel more in control and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. I mean, we, we kind of follow that law of physics a little bit and a body at rest tends to stay at rest. Um, and just not listening to sort of that depressed mind that just says, oh, you'll feel better if you do nothing, you'll feel better if you isolate, you won't. And you can prove it to yourself because you don't. If that actually worked, then you shouldn't be depressed anymore. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. If it worked to do all those things, to just stay in your house and eat a bunch of carbs and isolate yourself, then you should be really happy. Yeah. But you're not, you're still depressed and maybe more depressed. So clearly those behaviors do not lead where your sort of depressed mind is telling you they're going to lead. The depressed mind is a liar, honestly. It's so, so strange. It, it's insane. And this is where um, I always, I always kind of get tangled up into this where cognitive behavioral therapy has helped for you. When do you trust that mind and when is it lying to you? Because some things that go, hey, this is going to make you feel really good might be terrible for you in that moment. But on the other side, you know, stay in bed. This is going to make you feel really good too, but it feels absolutely terrible. But, but that's where you can look at your evidence, right? And exactly. you can go back yeah. and look at every single time I've told myself that staying in bed would make me feel better, did it. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah. probably 99% of the time it did not. Right. It didn't make you feel better. So there, so there's no evidence for that thought. 
right? So, so it's almost like you need an evidence log, out. essentially, right? Yeah, hey, I did this experiment. Well, the thought log has the evidence column, you know, evidence for, evidence against, and then the and then a, a more realistic thought. The the whole idea of evaluating your thinking is not just to prove a thought wrong. It's to it's to find a thought that fits evidence. Okay, that's your evidence. I think you just realistic. tied it all together for me. So yes. So evidence for the thought, evidence against the thought, yep. and then you look at all that evidence. So maybe, um, like again, if, with my dance class example, maybe your evidence for the thought that I would be a terrible dancer is um, you were in a dance contest when you were 15 and you lost. Right. Okay. So that's some evidence. Um, and maybe evidence against that thought is you uh, had to do this dance for a wedding and you had a couple little lessons and, and everybody complimented you on what a great dancer you were and everyone wanted to dance with you. So that would be evidence against that thought. So you have some evidence for some evidence against. So a, a more realistic thought might be, I used to not be a very good dancer. I'm a better dancer now. I don't know if I could become better, but I could try. That makes so much more sense. It's, you're essentially just making your thoughts match reality. Exactly. If, if at its simplest form, I'm, I was just trying to tie it all together. Simply exactly. Like that. that is exactly what you're doing. And then the, the, the added benefit to that is the more my thoughts match reality, the better problem solver I am. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> you're not I'm, trying to slay I, dragons or if reality is over here and my thoughts are over here, then all of my, problem solving efforts are over here and they're doing nothing for the problem, which is over here. Right. Because materially I'm not doing anything to solve this because I'm solving the problem in my head, not the one that actually exists. Right. So for instance, if you, your buddy that walked down the hall, you're, you think he's a jerk. He didn't say hi to me. Um, fine. You know, if that's the way he's going to be. And then you act on that thought and now you don't talk to him. And that was not at all why he didn't say hi to you. He really just didn't see you. He was deep in thought on something else and there was nothing personal, but now you're not talking to him and you're acting all angry. So now he assumes, well, what the hell's wrong with him? Why is he acting that way? Jeez, you know, um, I didn't do anything. Why is he acting like, well, fine. If you want to be that way, right? you can play this game. So now he's not talking to you. Now your relationship is ruined over, wait for it, something that never actually happened. <laughs> right. So you problem solved, but you're with your thought of he's a jerk, um, I'm going to get him back, whatever. That was your problem solving. It wasn't in reality, though. It had nothing to do with what was actually going on because you didn't have evidence and you didn't go get evidence to find out how should I problem solve this. That makes so much sense now. I, I I think I've had a lot of the pieces. It was, it it's for me. It gets strange, and this is this might be just a little dark, but it's like how how do you trust the thing that's trying to kill you? <laughs> you know, that's what it feels like sometimes when you have depression. So well, you don't. It, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's where I think this kind of tied in was you. I I would have the evidence column, and then I would have the you know things that don't make it real but at the it's like uh yeah these two columns have to match 
the the reality and the the evidence and then the other stuff's almost like the the fat you cut off of your meat <laughs> in a way and, and sometimes you do have evidence for both you know you do have a little evidence for something a little evidence against something yeah. so but then the meeting in the middle is not the black and white which it would have been if you were only on one side of that right and and then again you can cope with it better and you tend to feel better and it's not actually going to eliminate all the negative feelings so but let's say, you know, you, you rate your feelings before you do that, right? Yep. Let's say you were at a 10 on being sad and a 10 on being anxious and all that. And you do this process and your thought becomes, you know, less dichotomous and less black and white and more realistic. Well, maybe you're still sad, but it comes down to a five. Right. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're still a little worried, but, it, but that comes down to a two. I mean, that's still worth doing because some is better than none. Yeah. And that is a, that's another like really important thing for people to understand is you're not life is not ever going to be that you're just going to be happy every every second or you're going to be logical every second you're we're, we're trying to get better not perfect right and and some better is better than no better right. i like that <laughs> right? should be on a shirt <laughs> like that. well some is you know some is better than none and yeah. and you know, another thing, another little saying that I would say is that nothing changes if nothing changes. Yeah. Well, I have a, you know, I have this written you're on not my computer. Get, get anything different if you don't do something different. Yeah. Like right here, I'm looking at it right now. It says, don't let uh, perfectionism get in the way of good enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 There's, I, I'm often there's saying so this in meetings at work. Let's not make perfection the enemy of good. Yeah. Yeah. This, this will be my absolute last question for you. And because I, okay. I really, I'm gonna have to digest this and watch this a few times. Um, <laughs> what would what would be one thing you would suggest to people maybe listening that they could do to start like right now? Maybe maybe it doesn't have to be cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that. Or is it? Would you suggest like bringing awareness to just what's going on in your head, or you know, something to read? Like, what would you suggest? Well, I honestly would say if you are, if you really think that you have clinical depression or you have clinical anxiety, get help. There's just no reason not to. I mean, it, right. it's so helpful and it, you can stumble around on your own and you're probably going to get somewhat better, but it's just way easier when you do have that feedback and when you have that support and you have an assessment of what's going on and somebody that is professional and has a lot of knowledge and can help pinpoint for you and with you, like where you are, where you want to be, and how do you get from here to here in a, in a personalized way? Because therapy is not cookie cutter. If you've never gone to therapy before, don't think you're going to go and that it's just going to be like, oh, here, we're going to you know slap this manual and you're going to do this thing and everybody does right. the same thing. That's not the way it works. It's personalized to you and what you want and what your goals are. And, and if you go see a therapist and it isn't, then go see someone else right. because they're not doing their job right. But you know that and and it doesn't mean you're crazy it doesn't mean you've got to wade through every bad thing that ever happened to you in your past you don't you know you you're the director there and the goal is to get you there and i can tell you if you do it with a therapist if you do cognitive behavioral work i mean i have seen people who are really depressed for long periods of time within just a, a month or two really starting to feel better hmm. and not only are they feeling better but their life is getting better because they're problem solving is more logical and the the behaviors that you're engaging in are more related to actually solving the problem as opposed to again kind of what your depressed mind is telling you of we'll just stay in bed we'll isolate 
um, beat yourself over the head with a two by four, you know, metaphorically every day about how horrible you are, all of those things that kind of come up or with anxiety of, you know, just worrying and, and being fearful of everything. The therapy can really help. I mean, there are a ton of workbooks. You can, you can go on Amazon and there's lots of workbooks for cognitive behavioral therapy um, and, you know, that you can kind of do on yourself. But again, without the feedback, you kind of don't know if you're really doing it correctly. And then you just might get frustrated and not be happy. Um, you could go and just do a couple sessions even just to kind of get some, you know, like you don't have to be in therapy forever kind of thing. You can go and say, all right, I, I want to do like five, 10 sessions and just teach me how to do this. And then kind of try to go off and do it on your own. And those could be for um, people without depression or anxiety too, right? Like, oh, yeah. it, it seems yeah. like there's this message we get that you should only go to a therapist if you're at the worst of the worst, you need help. You're, you know, Oh no, I see a lot of people. Yeah. I see, I see a lot of people that we have a euphemism, the worried well. Um, (laughs) And there are people that they don't have any kind of disorder or anything, but maybe they're just going through something, you know, I, you know, they're going through a divorce or they're having a work problem or some other kind of family issue, or they want to work on sort of a self-esteem issue, or, or even like what, some of what we've just been talking about, a reactivity issue, like they just recognize I'm just constantly reacting to things, and I want to, I want to be more proactive than reactive. Yeah. Um, and all of these skills can absolutely be helpful just in life in general, because they really, they center you and they focus you more in what's going, actually going on you know, in your life, not just in your head. And then that again, helps you problem solve better. And the, the more you problem solve better, just the better your life is because things aren't getting away from you then, you right. know, you're not getting overwhelmed. Problems are not just getting bigger. Um, you're feeling more in control. Better things are happening for you. Hopefully you become more sort of resilient in the face of uh, disappointment or failure, or, you know, because again, if you just don't make a big deal out of it for yourself, it's not a big deal. The meaning making is in ourselves. It's not out in the world. The world does not make meaning of whether, you know, you're a good dancer or not you do. And so therefore you can decide not to make meaning out of it and just go have fun. Hmm. And you know, whatever that is, um, you can stop setting, you know, bars that are too high, you can stop setting goals that you keep failing at and instead use the mind trick and do some very small goals and actually start, you know, feeling successful, which will make you want to do more. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of small things you certainly can do on your own, but I think if you, if you actually have a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety, it's just a lot harder and it's probably going to take you longer to do it. Um, if it's just life stuff, yeah, I think you could do a lot of that on your own. But it's just like if you have a, another medical problem, you know, if you've got heart disease, yeah, you can go out and exercise and you can change your diet, but you still need the medical professionals to tell you whether it's working, right? You need the feedback. Yeah, I never understood what, how people could go get a physical checkup, but they don't get mental health checkups. And I, I feel like that it's trend not- might be changing a little bit, but... Um, yeah, it's going to take a while still. It's just, you know, it's the stigma stuff, but again, you know, don't stigmatize yourself. Right. Um, and I do think it's getting better too. I mean, I don't see nearly the stigma now in people, uh, accessing mental health and going to therapy as I did when I started my career 30 years ago, you know, and people mm-hmm. were a lot more like, I don't want anyone to know I'm in therapy. I mean, now a lot of my clients, like they tell everybody they're in therapy and they share the things they learn and. You know, it's like a whole, almost like a group thing out yeah, there. Yeah, that's how I felt. Like, 
the amount of relief I felt after I've, uh, some of these things just kind of, I call them knots, like a knot came out of my head. It was like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, why would I not want to share this with people? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I untangled something and I learned something and um, I, you know, maybe this would help my friend or maybe this, you know, would, would be this other thing. I think it's just, a, it's, it's kind of an effective and efficiency kind of thing. You can try it on your own and I don't discourage people, you know, actually from doing that, especially if you aren't very, you know, if you don't really have a disorder, but it's just a lot harder. And, it, and especially if you have any suicidal thoughts, your functioning is failing, like you aren't able to get up and go to work. You're not able to take care of your children. I mean, that is more, now you're coming into a crisis and you're not going to be able to just probably get out of that on your own. Cause that's kind of the definition of a crisis is I've run out of my own resources. Gotcha. You know, if I had resources, I'd be able to do those things, but I'm so down, I'm so tired, I'm so wiped out or whatever that I literally don't have the resources anymore to think straight, to have the energy to problem solve. And so I just kind of quit and you get into that sort of hopeless, helpless thing. And so if you're feeling that way, you really need to seek assistance, Um, you know, especially if you have any kind of current suicidal sort of ideation in the moment, I mean, if it's really, if you think you might do that, you really need to like, you know, call your doctor, call 911, go to the emergency room. These problems can be fixed. They don't feel like it in the moment, but I can't tell you the number of clients that I've had who contemplated suicide or even tried it at some point and were so happy they did not succeed. Right. Because it's not forever. It feels like it, but that we really do have good treatments. Yeah. For anxiety, for depression, for PTSD, we've got good treatments out there. And if you engage in them, the likelihood is, you know, your quality of life is really going to improve. Yeah. And you're, you know, an example of that, right? Because yeah, you're, I, you've done that. Yeah. And you're speaking, you're, you're pretty much taking the words out of my mouth is, you know, when, when I've been suicidal, it's been like, I don't know where else to go. I just want the pain to end. I didn't really want to kill myself, you know, right. but it was You don't like, really want to be dead. You just don't want to live like you're living. Exactly. And so having other resources, which provided that hope that just, you know, hey, I don't have to do this route over here. That's permanent. <laughs> Let's try this, right. you know. And, yeah, and you don't have to do it alone. Exactly. And that helps and, too, you know, for yes. a long time, I used to think I had to, and you know, it, it's so much easier. <laughs> not walking we are, social, we are social beings. We need each other. And yeah, people no care reason. about you. Yeah. There's yeah. no reason to, um, we don't function well. You know, if you think about the worst punishment you could do to somebody short of like the death penalty, what is it? Solitary confinement. Yeah. Which That's is what about it feels the worst like thing in you, depression. You can yeah. do, yeah, because it is just is to completely isolate someone. So when you do it to yourself, like yeah, it's just making you suffer more. It isn't. It's not helping. It's not necessary. Um, and that's, you know, that's the thing that people used to do as the worst punishment. You know, communities. If you go back, you know, a couple hundred years, um, if you committed some kind of like crime in that community, they would shun you. Right? right. And shunning yeah. was basically no one has anything to do with you. Hmm. And that was considered about the worst thing you could do to somebody short of killing them. And it's crazy that we do that to ourselves. You know, it's, it, it just, it's more, it causes more pain. There's no shame in being, you know, when people come in, they, they say to me, Oh, I feel terrible. You know, I feel ashamed or whatever. I kind of stick my hand out and go, I'd like to welcome you to the human race. <laughs> 
because everybody needs other people. This is yeah. not even, it's kind of like saying, I'm ashamed that I need to eat food. Right. Or it's, drink water. It's the same thing. It's a, it's a need. It's an innate need. It's not anything that there isn't a person on the planet that doesn't have it. So, you know, talk your, talking yourself a little bit out of that shame is, it is similar though. It's like, you need food, you need water, you, you need connection. Yeah. I think, I think you just, I think that just tied it all together. And you know, we, we started talking about the pandemic and needing connection with people, uh, whether you're in a mental health crisis or not, you know, it's always about connecting with people and, you know, knowing mm -hmm. what's going on. And, and I want to thank you for connecting with me right now. Like this, this has been extremely eye opening. You know, um, I thought I had a, a little bit of a handle on cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, I need to go back and you know, reread some of those books and challenge some of my thinking I have on it right now. So I want well, to thank Sean, you for I've that. Probably, I've probably been doing it longer than you've been alive. So it's okay. <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, I needed, I needed someone to check me on it, you know, and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Well, you're time. very, very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure um, to have this conversation and I hope that it's helpful. Whew, that was a good one. I, whew, I use a lot of these things in this podcast uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the thought one, man, that gets me the difference between a thought and a feeling. Mind blown. Uh, thanks everyone for watching. If you have somebody you suggest or that you think would be a good guest, let me know um, either uh, in an email or just just get a hold of me. That would be great. If you do need help, remember there are a list of mental health resources over at onewholelifemedia.com that will help you out and uh, get you the help you need. Uh, and if you want to support this channel, always onewholelifemedia.com will, will help you in a million ways to, to do that. Give this a share if you think it could help somebody. And yeah, remember, life's meant to be experienced and curiosity will get you there. I will see you or see you in the next one. Bye, everybody.